Lauren Asby, welcome to the chat room. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I'll start off with Lauren. Lauren, if you don't mind for the viewers, would you mind just giving a brief introduction on who you are? So I'm an American, um, but I've lived in Japan for about 15 years um, and lived in this region for about 10 years. Um, in 20, late 2015, my husband and I bought a Kuminka and started the renovation journey. And we finally moved in about a year ago. Great. Okay, Asby, if you wouldn't mind for our viewers just providing a brief introduction. Yes. Uh, I'm American uh, from New Orleans in Louisiana in the South. Uh, I've been in Japan since 1985, so it's over 30 years, 35 years or so. And I first came to Japan because I was interested in temple carpentry, what's called Miyadaiku, and was able to spend three years uh, researching uh, at the worksite of the last great temple carpenter. His name was uh, Tsunekazu Nishioka, uh, who passed away in the 1990s. Uh, and that sort of led to an interest on, on my part in, in uh, Japanese sensibility about the environment. And uh, I've done a lot of other work, writing, uh, creative work as well, uh, about uh, lifestyles of Japan, both traditional and post-war. Uh, and then a little over a decade ago, became very interested in the Edo period and how people of that uh, era dealt with their environmental issues and created a sustainable society. So I've been looking at uh, farmhouses, what's called Kominka for a long time, uh, how they integrate in with an environmental sensibility that was pervasive, uh, which I think has a lot uh, to teach us today. No, thank you. Thank you, Asby, and thank you, Lauren. I'm going to start off with you, Lauren. Um, and again, that probably for some of the viewers, they've heard about Kominka. Would you mind just elaborating what is a Kominka? And that might be a better question for Asby, but um, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> so basically, it's a, an, a farmhouse, a, a house built for regular people. Um, working people out in the rural parts of Japan. And there are a number of different styles, which as we can elaborate on, um, but generally they're designed to house three or even four generations. So they tend to be quite large. Um, basic features are huge beams. Um, often the beams are reused from house to house. So the house we're in now was built in 1907, but we were told that the beams were from the previous house, that they recycled them when they rebuilt this, when they built this house. Um, sometimes they have land around them, usually rice fields, often they're rice farmers. And depending on the style, they can be single story or up to four stories high, each story used for different purposes. No, thank you, Asby, would you like to, uh to expand mm. upon Lauren's explanation? Sure. Um, yeah, I, as she pointed out, there is a tremendous amount of uh, regional variation mm. in, uh, in, in Minka or Kominka, Japanese farmhouses. Um, they've evolved over time, but there's a lot of consistency. And as Lauren pointed mm. out, these fantastic beams, this large timbers used to uh, form the main structure. Uh, mm. And, you know, different parts of the country have different environmental conditions and, and different mm. uh, resource conditions. And so what we see is this beautiful adaptation uh, no matter where you are or what era, uh, you find that the, the, the traditional farmhouses would just beautifully 
adapted to those those mm -hmm. conditions uh, and also to societal conditions and you know certainly they were initially intended for ex extended families lots of people living together uh, and now our lifestyle is a little bit different we have smaller families and that sometimes becomes uh, one issue uh, and it's interesting that Lauren pointed out uh, that this, the, the timbers, the, the, some of the, the wood used in this house when it was built, you know, uh, mm. in, in the 1900s uh, were older. And this is another mm. great characteristic, uh, like mm. almost all Japanese architecture. Uh, the buildings were designed to be able to be disassembled. They're held together mm. with wedges and pegs and joints and morses and tenons designed to be, you know, uh, disassembled for maintenance and other reasons. But mm. of course, if the house, uh, you know, is at its end of life, there's probably a lot of very, very good material in it. And mm. this material can then be recycled to the next generation. So it's almost like the buildings are not um, the end use of the material. They're simply keeping mm. the material for a certain period of time for one or two generations, and then it can be reused for the next. It's a beautiful mm. concept uh, yeah. echoed by something we call buildings as material banks uh, these mm. days. So it's a, it's a wonderful process. They're a living thing that grow and change uh, over mm. time uh, along with the occupants. Oh, wonderful. That's a that's a, a wonderful explanation. Um, it's quite a nice sort of segue into you've recently republished your book just enough, and I guess to some degree, you know, this is quite quite a nice sort of segue into the discussion around you know sustainability during the Edo period and essentially what that can teach us in our hectic world right now. Yeah, there's so much uh, to say, but I I think the key point to understand is that uh, the Japanese society of the Edo period faced a lot of the same challenges we're facing. Uh, they didn't have climate change necessarily, mm. uh, but they had a growing population, they had urbanization, they had a lack of resources, they had an energy crunch, uh, they began to experience pollution and deforestation, uh, and they managed to reverse all of that uh, and build what we would consider a model sustainable or circular society, something that we, we can really learn from. And farmhouses played a key role in that. I mean, the 80, 90% of the population were farmers. They were living uh, in these kinds of buildings, uh, which were not simply homes. They were sort of the center for the farm economy. They were almost like businesses mm -hmm. and they adapted very well for all of those functions, big open spaces for work, um, you know, places for people to gather, uh, for food preparation, for storage, for all of these things. They, they were also integrated beautifully with their surrounding environment uh, and, and depended on uh, access to what's called the Satoyama, which is, you could call this the village mountain, which was mm. used for gathering fuel for firewood or for, mm. uh, uh, you know, uh, foraging for vegetables and mushrooms and things like that. It was an essential part of the environment. Environment. And uh, this is the, the great knowledge I, I feel is embodied in these Japanese kominka when I see them, mm. that they, they, they show this love and care and craftsmanship and understanding of, you know, how humans can live beautifully and, and harmoniously with their environment. So this is, for me, one of the big, big takeaways. Well, I was, uh, I was going to ask Lauren, uh, what got her attracted to, or wanting to have this kominka experience? And I guess that you've eloquently sort of responded on behalf of Lauren, maybe. But Lauren, <laughs> I'll, be, uh, I'll be interested to hear, um, you know, it's, it's a big undertake, really, to begin a journey of Cominca ownership. 
Where did it start and why did it start? Yeah, it was sort of an accident, actually. <laughs> my, my husband, who's from Scotland originally, is a, a master joiner and builder. And um, he'd always loved these old houses, but we didn't think about owning one. And we were actually looking for some land and he wanted to build something small, sort of be the last house we were likely to build together and, you know, do something cool and interesting and environmentally friendly and sustainable and you know, all those all those things. But then on my 50th birthday, a, a friend sent me a link to a Cominca for sale about two hours from us. And uh, we thought, well, no harm in going to look at it. Um, and we fell in love with with that one. It was it was 200 years old. It was huge. Um, it had uh, mountain water for its water source. It was sort of in the middle of nothing, rural, rural noto. Um, so we pursued it, but it fell through. And uh, we thought, oh, well, you know, it is what it is. And but the real estate agent felt badly and about felt bad about it. And about, I don't know, three months later, she called and said, I found another one. You should come see it. it might be just perfect. And, and it was this one, which really was perfect in every way. So we had good friends in Alaska who were big into sustainability and they lived their lives in a very sustainable way, but they, they had been renting a place. And when it was time to, they got married, they needed their own place. They, they weighed building new and sustainable against preserving a house that already existed. And in the end, they went that route and felt that they, if this house is already here. We're not going to use all of the energy and everything that goes into building a new house, no matter how sustainable that house may end up being, it's going to use a lot of resources to get mm -hmm. built. And we remembered that when we found this place and thought, you know, but everything, as we just said, this house is sort of a monument to sustainability. And uh, so that's sort of what sold us on it. Yeah, no, wonderful. As we, uh, have you ever considered having your own Cominca or starting the Cominca journey? All the time. Uh, and <laughs> myself and saying, you know, what's, what's stopping me? And I guess it's, yeah, uh, let's say life work uh, conditions, uh, family conditions and things like that. Um, you know, it's really interesting because um, not everybody likes old farmhouses or old houses. Mm. And I, one of the great puzzlements uh, ever since I arrived in Japan was why Japanese people seem to feel, you know, they're not attractive or, or uncomfortable. Mm. You know, they think they're not going to be easy to live in or, or, mm. or they'll be gloomy or dark or something like that or hard to maintain. And uh, I would say that my extended family, my Japanese family pretty much, you know, feels that way. So for them, it would be a very, very weird thing to do. Uh, they don't understand how much progress has been made with mm -hmm. learning how to retrofit installation or, or put in new, uh, you know, uh, plumbing and electrical or um, to really to update the things to be very, very, you know, uh, convenient for our lifestyle today while maintaining uh, that atmosphere. But I look all the time and I'm involved with a, a number of projects constantly involving old farmhouses, re renovations, restorations, uh, community projects, etc. So uh, I feel like I'm I'm spending a lot of time in and around uh, Cominca and and promoting uh, their restoration uh, mm -hmm. without myself living in one, which is maybe that's fair enough. <laughs> it's an interesting point that you raised, Asby, as well, and I'll I'll sort of throw this back to Lauren because. I would imagine that you've got the traditionalists of Cominca ownership versus um, versus individuals, as an example, that would want to have 
a cominka with all the mod cons to this? I mean, you know, really from uh, from your experience, where do you sort of fit? Do you sit? Do you sit in that sort of traditional bucket to kind of maintain as much of that sort of cominka experience? You know, even if that does mean that you're going to get very cold at winter and very hot during the summertime. Or do you sort of say, well, okay, that there's a balance to be had. I'm just curious in terms of, uh, from your perspective, what would you look at? This is me, for me? Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah, um, no, definitely the, the latter. Um, you know, you can, we've kept the bones of this house as is and most of the original features, but within that we have insulated the floors and the walls where we can, we've insulated the roof. We've, we, last week, Bit the bullet and put in an air conditioner. Uh, we thought we could do it, but you know, to three weeks straight of crazy humidity and high temps, they just thought, eh, why suffer? We're too old for that. Um, we have a wood stove to heat. So uh, all mod cons. I mean, everything in the house is modern and comfortable, but when you walk in, what you see is an old Japanese farmhouse with furniture, you know, with yeah. modern lights. But, it's a good balance, I think. Some people have gone much further. I visited some kominka, especially ones that have been turned into hotels or villas. Um, you know, basically the only thing is the frame. They've kept the traditional beams, but everything else is completely modern um, to, to better or worse results, depending on who did it. <laughs> um, but there is the other extreme too. I, I know of several people who were determine you know not to change a thing and to live as authentically as possible and uh, you know I, I admire them but I, I don't want to live like that so yeah I guess it just comes down to a personal choice mm. at the end of the day right it really does yeah, yeah. If, if I may add yeah there's lots mm. of motivations for people to to mm. renovate or to try to uh, restore Minka and this mm. is something that came out at the Minka summit really mm. Um, you know, some people are really, yeah, they want to live authentically. They may be mm. doing organic farming. I would say, let's say a number of, of Japanese uh, people, I know younger couples who are doing this sort of thing, that seems to be their attitude. Um, mm. Others, maybe non-Japanese foreigners who want a vacation house. And some mm. people may be yeah, running a hotel or a restaurant. They want to do a mm -hmm. business. And there's a lot of, you know, different needs and different requirements depending on what. Mm. Uh, but one of the interesting things to me uh, is the degree to which this this sort of boom in interest is driven by non-Japanese. And mm -hmm. I, I think back to um, uh, Yoshio um, Takishita from uh, uh, Kamakura, who was someone who really mm -hmm. began to do this sort of uh, Minka restoration boy, 30, 40 years ago. And for a really? while, he seemed to be one mm -hmm. of the only people. And most mm -hmm. of his clients were non-Japanese. Mm -hmm. He would go to the countryside and buy old farmhouses and have them dismantled and the materials stored uh, and until he found a client. And then he would ship it to wherever mm -hmm. it was and they would uh, re re reconstruct it. So it, mm -hmm. it is interesting the degree to which the non-Japanese uh, are kind of driving the trend. Yeah, absolutely. When I first came to Japan in 1990, I 15 years, but broken up over three different times. Um, and back then, I, not a single foreigner I knew even considered staying permanently in Japan, let alone buying a house, let alone buying an old house. Like it just wasn't <laughs> even a thing. Um, and when I came back again in the late 90s, mid 90s, it was mid to late 90s, some people were starting to get interested. But again, it was mostly, for the most part, 
similar people with with Asbi's resume married to a foreign men married to a Japanese woman and most of the Japanese women wanted nothing to do with these old houses so buying or building a new house was the route and then we came back in 2012 and even even 2012 which is only 10 years ago there wasn't it's really been like the last five years suddenly it's just exploded and I think part of that is for Americans, it's a lot of Americans who've decided they prefer to stay in Japan. And if they're gonna stay here, they wanna do something interesting and cool and sustainable. Um, for non-Americans, just decided to make a life here and trying to find a, an affordable way to do that. Okay. Yeah, very, very true. It, it really seems to have reached a, a critical mass over the last mm. several years, hasn't it? And again, some of it is a great you know, example of that. Um, mm. So many people are interested. There's so much knowledge. Mm. There's so much experience now that people can share. Mm. If you want to find someone who can do a thatch roof, you can find them. You want advice about, you know, dealing with, you know, termites that someone can help you with that. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and social media has enabled this. Uh, you know, lots of yeah. videos and lots of, you know, uh, information and, and, and things available easily. So yeah. it is a great moment. And for people, yeah, I've, I consider myself kind of an old timer. Uh, and, you know, thinking back 30 years ago, you know, mm. there was almost nobody doing it. So uh, now it's like, wow, it's it's mm. become such a, an obvious uh, possibility for yeah. so many people. So I think it's, mm. a, it's a great time. Yeah. Thank you, Asby. Uh, Lauren, I was going to ask you then, I mean, from your, from your journey of Cominca ownership, hmm. what's really been your, I, would, I was going to say your biggest challenges, but I'm probably going to hear you say, well, actually, there's been multiple layers of big challenges. So I guess what's been your, your biggest challenges around your Cominca journey? And just to kind of emphasize a point what uh, Asby was just talking about, what support have you been receiving or what support have you also been providing uh, to new owners of Cominca as well? Hmm. Probably the biggest challenge has been um, not killing my husband and vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> uh, after 30 years, you'd think we'd be over that. But um, no, I, I think we didn't really have challenges because we don't, I don't know, we don't expect to have challenges. I mean, the most there were some frustrations at the beginning with the, the city and the Akia Bank and, you know, learning the hard way, the difference between what needs to be done on the surface and what actually needs to be done, you know, just mm. Japanese bureaucracy, basically. <laughs> but once we got through that, um, they left us alone and we've just sort of been doing our thing. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, we just we researched them we did most of this before Komika Japan was a thing. So there wasn't that network necessarily, but we asked just local friends if we needed. My Japanese is conversational, but it's not good enough to go online and research things and call people up. Um, so, but I'd enlist the Japanese friend, you know, find out how we get our 20 amp house up to a 50 amp house, you know, yeah. find out how we do this, find out how we do that. And people would help out that way. But um, my husband's not a big, ask for helper in the best of times so <laughs> he, he really likes to sort things out and figure things out himself and do things his way um so yeah we just sort of plugged along we're a little unusual I, when i listen to all these stories and that a we bought the second house we ever saw b it went really smoothly other than a few little hiccups at the beginning and c we were able to do everything ourselves um right. so 
that, that was nice. And we had a budget. We didn't have a budget, but we had the money to do whatever we wanted, but we decided mm. to do it in a sustainable and simple way and use creative materials and not just hire somebody to come in and you know put in that skylight or put in those doors, like figure out a way to do it. Yeah. Anyway. I was going to sort of lead on to uh, the group Cominka Japan, to which mm. you are very much a member of. And mm -hmm. I'm only saying from my perspective, the mm. awareness, as I alluded earlier, the awareness around uh, Kominka really started to escalate this year through mm. the summit. But I guess yeah. that the summit itself was just the, the highlight or the presentation of mm. all of the years of work and the collaboration that had gone on before. And mm. I guess that um, maybe this is a good way for well, you just to give the viewers a little bit more information on the group Kominka Japan and what it does. Sure. Yeah, it started um, I think in 2016, actually. Uh, I went down to, we had bought this place and a mutual friend introduced us to a guy who lived outside of Kyoto in Hanase and said, oh, he just bought a Minka too, you should go visit him. So we drove down and we met him and he was great and we spent the weekend with him and his family and during the weekend, I said, yeah, you should start a Facebook group. You know, there's probably a, there's probably a few other people out there that might be interested in this. Um, and so he did. He set up a little Facebook group. And pretty much from 2016 until 2020, we had, I think, nine members. <laughs> like I reached out to Alex Carr right at the beginning. I had met him at an event and invited him, and he he joined. So we had eight members and Alex, which you think would be a big deal, but but then COVID. Um, something happened during COVID. I think people being home, people spending time in front of their computers, people realizing they could work from anywhere, maybe and not having to live in Tokyo anymore. Um, I also was invited to a like Renovation Japan Facebook group, which had a lot of members. So I told Stuart about it and he, he put the Kominka Japan information there. And that's sort of really what started the ball rolling. So from Earth, probably mid 2020 until now, we went from nine members to over 2,500 members. Um, about, I don't know the statistics exactly, but over half the members do not live in Japan. They are people who are interested or plan to move to Japan or thinking about moving back to Japan. And, but yeah, it's quite a diverse crowd. And like you said, there's so much information there now. So it's, a, I see questions all the time and it's wonderful how quickly people pump, 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 come yeah. in with all their answers and all their suggestions. And, uh, oh, great. It's just a, a wonderful resource. And as me, that uh, you was one of the guest speakers at the Kominka mm -hmm. Summit uh, this year. Uh, again, really, I'm, I'm curious and probably for our viewers as well, just to, understand the discussion of the topic and what was your experiences of the summit as well? Well, it was again, really eye-opening and in a way energizing and uh, wonderful networking and talking to so many people who share this, mm -hmm. this great interest. Um, I spent a lot of time listening to the other presentations, whether they were mm -hmm. about, you know, the real estate aspects or, you know, technical aspects or uh, media, the media side, or, you know, how to deal with the so-called Akia Bank, uh, which Lauren mm -hmm. referred to. This is these, uh, you know, uh, uh, source of information about vacant houses uh, in mm -hmm. Japan. And uh, it was just really, really interesting. And 
one thing that came up constantly, and this sort of reminds me, you know, Lauren showed beautiful photos and videos of, of, the, of her house. And um, I would say she's done it very, very lovingly. And uh, one thing that came up a lot is people say, yeah, the house will tell you what it wants. Mm. You know, the, the house itself, it's almost like a living being with, yeah. with will <laughs> and with the story. And, mm. and this, this desire to be connected to something deeper, uh, uh, you know, with, with greater roots and foundations, you know, in history and in time is, is a kind of hunger that can only be satisfied sometimes by uh, uh, taking on a project like this and, and, mm. and to live in and to live with this kind of house. I think it's something really, really beautiful. Um, so, yeah, it was a great, great community, um, mm. you know, and people going out and visiting all of these houses. I went to see quite a few myself uh, mm. and to see, yeah, look at these people and look at how they're developing their own unique lifestyle. I mean, because they're all different. I mean, they, yeah. they may be similar with these beautiful wooden beams and columns and stuff, but everyone's mm. life is different and everyone's lifestyle and everyone's way of adapting these mm. buildings to their lifestyle to their dreams is different mm. so I, I thought it was really really great and you know look forward mm. to, to seeing more i think alex carr he referred to it as woodstock this is the woodstock <laughs> movement which is just a perfect observation <laughs> he, he was amazing we were really we were so fortunate to have him as our keynote speaker and he attended the whole thing he talked to everybody he visited everything and he said something interesting, you know, this, along with uh, um, Takeshita-san that, as we mentioned, Asby from the foreigner side has probably been at this the longest. I mean, basically in 1972, he bought a Kominka uh, in Shikoku and he's sort of been the Kominka proponent ever since. And he told me he's, he's given 547 presentations about why we should save Kominka. So when we first asked him, he was like, oh sure, I can, I can do my presentation. He said, but then I started realizing, no, my 547 presentations were to Japanese government officials trying to explain to them why we need to <laughs> save these Minka, but you people already know that. I had to write an entirely new presentation for you. <laughs> <laughs> But it was great. I think he enjoyed it and we certainly enjoyed it. It was a wonderful presentation, basically about the history of Western influence and Westerners um, you know, coming to love and respect Japanese, not just Minka, but Japanese culture from the, the folk craft movement mm -hmm. in the early 20th mm -hmm. century. Uh, there is a long history of passionate foreigners in Japanese yeah. culture. And maybe this is just the latest wave of it. Lauren, I was going to ask you, I mean, if you've, so with the Facebook group sort of expanded now in terms of the membership, and mm. as we've mentioned that there's a lot more sort of trend interest in terms of Cominkron, but where would somebody, for example, if somebody says, yeah, I'm ready to buy a Cominkron, I'm ready to start my journey, mm. where do they go? Or which areas of Japan do they look at? Or mm. what resources are available for them? I know that, you know, you had your own reason for being where you are in Japan mm -hmm. and where you wanted to. But if somebody says, I just want this lifestyle, what, where would they go for this type of information? Hmm. Well, we, we both keep mentioning the Akia Bank, which yeah. would probably be the first place. Um, they have a website and they have each prefecture and then they list the homes in each prefecture. It's a good place to start. Um, I read a statistic recently that of the 8 million empty houses in Japan, only 3% of them are actually listed. Really? So it can be quite difficult to, to find them. I mean, we, we have a dog, we walk our neighborhood probably 
sad, but 40 to 50% of the houses in our neighborhood are, are empty, but actually not a single one of them shows up on the Akia bank listing. So, because like, as we said earlier, the majority of Japanese people don't see them as a valuable commodity or have any interest. And you say to these, it's mostly old farmers mm. that live in these houses. Mm. So if you tell them, foreigners would be interested in your home and would give you quite a lot of money for it, they'd look at you like you're insane. <laughs> 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 you know, they can't wait to get rid of these things or move, but half of them are empty because the, the younger generation has built a home and grandma and grandpa have moved into the new house with the younger kids and yeah. the farmhouse just stands there empty. Um, I so Sarah... thinking, Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, if, if you're in an area that you want to stay, then just getting to know the community, putting the word out, talking to the locals. Mm. Letting people know you are interested, showing that you understand Japanese community lifestyle—that's um, that's a good place to start. And so. is there particular areas in Japan where there's more kominkas, for example? Would you have more kominkas in, say, Kyushu than Hokkaido, or or it, or it just doesn't work like that? Yeah, Aspe, you can probably take this one. Um, again, I don't have statistics to tell you, but yeah. I'd say evenly distributed throughout the nation. Really? One yeah. thing that makes a big difference is how far away they are from a major uh, urban center like Tokyo. So uh, mm. Nagano got a lot of uh, interest early on uh, mm -hmm. because it was not that far away. It already had sort of a, a vacation, you know, you know, industry, et cetera. Uh, a lot of second homes were there. So a lot of people, mm. I think uh, 10, 15 years ago, were looking in Nagano. There's a lot of sleepers. Chiba Prefecture has a lot. I'm working on a project now to, to restore one as an educational facility, uh, you know, training for, you know, environmental and sustainable stuff. And, um, and there's a lot uh, in Chiba Prefecture, certainly oh, wow. Saitama. If you go to, to um, Kansai, of course, uh, Kyoto area, um, Shiga, Shiga Prefecture, quite a lot there. Um, I think Lauren mentioned uh, uh, Shikoku. And one mm. of the interesting things about uh, Alex Carr's project there is that it is so isolated. It's incredibly difficult to get to, <laughs> uh, and it's isolated. And that is why mm. they were preserved and, and, and stayed in use for a very, very long time. So mm. I think anywhere you want to live, you can find a traditional building. Mm. And I would like to point out, um, Kolminka, uh, generally we're talking about farmhouses, but there's mm. a lot of what are called machia, which are townhouses, mm. traditional yeah. buildings, uh, usually a shop on the ground floor and residence behind. And these are also uh, all around the country. Uh, a lot of cities, of course, have had uh, you know destruction during the war because of earthquakes, but there's still a lot left over. Mm. And now there's a great deal of interest in restoring and reviving these. And uh, Lauren, mm. of course, she's in Ishikawa and Kanazawa is one place that mm. has a fantastic uh, quantity and, 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 yeah. and store of those kinds of buildings. Uh, Kyoto has many of course, disappearing tragically, mm. uh, you mm. know, day by day due to lack of mm. interest. So um, it could be a machia, it could be a kominka, it could be another kind of building. Mm. Oh, interesting, interesting. And, and I was thinking just really looking at kominka and looking at the beans and everything, we mentioned before the resources that are available now to help with, uh, you know, let's just say challenges of wear and tear, but one part of a kaminka that certainly from my perspective that i would have a little concern about and asby you're going to correct me if i'm going to uh, i'm going to mispronounce this is the kayabuki the thatch roof um and i would imagine that there's the experience of kayabuki specialists back in the edo period but you know if there is a problem with the thatch roof and i don't know the lifespan of a thatch roof 
What happens in this day and age of trying to get a thatch roof replaced then? It's a, it's a fabulous um, you know, technique and a beautiful kind of roof, uh, this traditional thatch. And, and kaya is actually kind of a reed. It's like a grass, very, very long. And it, mm. other, other materials could be used for that, uh, but it is a particular species that was used you know, throughout the country uh, through, through most of history. Uh, and in the modern period, they really began to disappear uh, or to be covered up with like metal roofing. Uh, and this is yeah. largely due to a fire hazard, but also due to the, the difficulty of maintenance. Mm. Uh, one of the wonderful things, though, is uh, when the village of uh, Shirakawago was made into a um, you know, UNESCO World Heritage Site, uh, that sparked an incredible increase in training uh, and interest in thatch roofing. And uh, because yeah. those buildings needed to be constantly restored and their roofs need to be constantly uh, you know, re replenished and, and, and mm. you know, uh, maintained. And a lot of people trained uh, in thatching uh, because of, of the need to, to, to thatch so many of those buildings there. And I think that has had a wonderful spillover effect to the rest of the mm. country. Uh, I, I mentioned earlier that, of course, um, you know, every region of Japan had a specific, unique style of the, the building itself in terms of its shape and maybe mm. how the rooms are organized, etc. Also, the roofing and the thatching was was very, very, you know, different depending on where you were. Maybe now those variations are difficult to, um, you know, maintain and uphold. Mm. But uh, I think it's easy to find thatchers now, much easier mm. now than it was 40, 50 years ago. So this is interesting, but it is expensive. Uh, mm -hmm. Getting the material is expensive. Uh, they basically, you know, we're thinking 50 years or so, uh, the roof can last uh, maybe less, uh, less time depending on the conditions, uh, mm -hmm. but it really needs to be constantly replenished. Uh, and, um, you know, it's expensive. Uh, mm -hmm. I, you know, maybe we don't want to talk prices, but um, a, a big percentage of the overall cost, if you want to do a thatch roof, uh, a third or sometimes even a half of the cost could be the thatch roof itself. Wow. Just to talk about the cost element of a kominka. So we mentioned about the thatch roof being, you know, a large cost in the event that that needs to be replaced. Um, just really out of my ignorance, but what other parts of a kominka, if you did need to replace, would end up sort of costing a little bit more than uh, what your budget may, may have allowed? Um, well, I, I would say a relatively small percentage of Kominka have thatched roofs anymore. So the mass majority have tile. Oh, that being said, okay. replacing a tile roof is also quite an expense. <laughs> so in either case, uh, your roof would probably be your biggest expense. I've been amazed. We've Since we bought ours, we've probably helped, assisted, contributed to at least half a dozen other people who are in the market and going on inspections and whatnot. So we've been looking at a lot of them the last few years how often they replace the roof before they list it. Like they feel that's something that needs to be done or they've been advised mm. it needs to be done, but it's happened more, more often than it just being a random occurrence. Like the roof was just replaced three years ago. The house has been empty for seven years, but they replaced the roof three years ago. <laughs> so I don't know if they think that that's how they can get anything for it. Like the house is worthless, but now it has a new roof. So you're paying for the roof. Um, oh, it's interesting. Yeah. 
One one thing I see often uh, is that over time, these buildings may be, you know, more than 100 years old, 200 years old. Uh, there's settling that happens. And sometimes mm-hmm. uh, it's necessary to sort of jack up the structure or replace yeah. the underfloor structure, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not necessarily the columns and beams themselves, but Often, uh, you know, if it's an older house, particularly, there's a a, a bit of expense and, and time involved in sort of, you mm. know, f- f- making it level again and, and mm. the floor structure is is intact. Mm. So that's that's yeah. what um, other otherwise people find a way, mm. you know, whether or not do you think it's important. I mean, do you, do you need to replaster the walls? Do you want to replace the walls? Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you absolutely need uh, to do uh, new ceilings, for instance? Mm-hmm. Those things can, can add on. Maybe yeah. you want to actually make structural modifications and change the interior layout. People will do that. That may bring uh, some additional cost as well. Uh, but, you know, basically one of the wonderful attractions of these houses is that the original materials were so good uh in generally better quality uh than Mm. you can find now or if you could find them now they'd be incredibly expensive whether it's just the beams or columns or these big thick floorboards of hard Mm. kayaki wood for instance Mm. they're they're very difficult to find and they were uh, chosen in the past because they were so durable and and would be expected to last for generations so mm-hmm. other things like the shoji the screens and the you know mm-hmm. the tommy mats etc those are going to be replaced frequently mm-hmm. but the right. basic bones what we keep coming back to the bones the basic structure mm-hmm. was incredibly durable uh and would be prohibitively expensive to source yeah. with new material today yeah. If you want yeah, no, very. Yeah. Lauren, was the uh, the local prefecture were they very supportive in terms of the process for you to 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 own a cominka? Um, you know, we mentioned about the the bank and the availability of cominkas there, but I just wonder, you know, whether the local government slash prefecture mm-hmm. were supportive in any way in terms of just helping mm-hmm. subsidies or things like that for for new cominka yeah. ownership. Yeah, it was only on the the city level that we had to deal with. Um, And yeah, actually they were, they, once we bought it and we changed our residency um, from Kanazawa to here, they gave us a million yen, 1 million yen, um, half in cash and half in little coupons that could be used in the city. (laughs) Um, We had to keep all the receipts and, um, but there are no, I think we had to use it all within the first year of renovations. Um, but that was nice. That was roughly a, a third of, you know, the, about a quarter of the cost of the house. So it was a significant savings. Then we used it for a lot of the big stuff we did that first year, the floors and whatnot. So. And would that and be similar, similar subsidy, subsidies that other city governments would be yeah. in other areas? Do you have a view? It, they all, almost all of them seem to have something, but what they have varies considerably and the rules and regulations attached to it vary considerably. Um, so yeah, you, you have to really ask around. And, uh, but they were forthcoming about it. We didn't know, because you know, we're generally clueless about things like that. Um, so if they hadn't told us, we would not have known that it was a thing that they were like, oh, you bought a house, we'll give you money now. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, so that, that was great. But since then, I've heard many different variations and many different amounts. And um, there are some places that will basically give you the house if you move there and fix it up. Um, somewhere else, I think they charge you about 25,000 yen a month. Uh, and then you have three years to renovate it and then you own it. You know, this is, there's many different 
Oh, interesting. Things that up. Lots of things for under 40 year olds too. I've seen that four or five times. They're just trying to get young people to move out <laughs> to the more rural areas. So uh, if you're under 40, we'll give you a house basically. One thing that's very interesting, and although it's mm -hmm. taken decades for this to happen, is that local governments do realize more and more mm -hmm. the value of preserving these old buildings, whether they are mm -hmm. farmhouses or, or in town as Machia. And yeah. that has led to different kinds of subsidies. As Lauren mentioned, they vary widely mm -hmm. depending on where and what kind of you know local government mm -hmm. uh, is in place. Uh, some of the more attractive types of subsidies that I've heard of have been for people who want to renovate an older building uh, as a business. Yeah. Uh, some towns, you know, that have mm. a lot of, let's say, old machia, old storehouses, mm. um, you know, stores, they they would really want to support that and make that very, very attractive. Uh, mm. In other cases, simply in the name of preserving, uh, you know, natural, cultural, traditional landscape, this has mm. become a, kind mm. of a thing. So uh, they want the old farmhouses to be there. And again, this sort of is influenced by tourism. And, mm. uh, you know, again, Alex Carr's name will come up again. Uh, I think he really was very, very successful working with local mm. governments to persuade them to to restore old buildings uh, mm. for tourists, for inbound tourists specifically. Mm. Uh, and I think this I, will continue, if anything. Mm. Oh, well, it's... Uh... Yeah, it's a truly sort of fascinating discussion. And I know that we've actually covered a lot on today's call. And I just wondered, you know, before we look to wrap things up, Lauren Asby, was there anything else that you felt that uh, our viewers uh, would like to know more about Cominka or your overall experiences? Maybe I'll hand that over to Lauren first. Gosh, we did cover a lot today. So <laughs> left anything out. I would just I would really encourage people to consider it if they're thinking about getting a, a house, if they live here already and they're looking to buy rather than rent or if they're overseas, but considering coming to Japan, it's just, it's a wonderful experience and you're, you're preserving history, you're, you're living a sustainable life, uh, you're contributing to preserving a culture. I think it's just important on many levels to keep these houses and, and townhouses alive. That's great. Asby, sir? I would echo what Lauren just said, um, and I would like to emphasize the beauty of it. Uh, mm. You know, the, the care, the craftsmanship, the quality of the materials, um, you know, what the spaces feel like, what they actually, you know, how we respond to them physically when we're there. Uh, mm. It's a beautiful thing to do, a beautiful way to live, and uh, I encourage everyone to do it. Uh, and would love to persuade people near me to, to do that as well. <laughs> I'm in the same boat as well, Asby. I still need to convince my wife as well. But no, thank you uh, to both of you. And Lauren, for viewers that wanted to understand or find out a little bit more about the Kominka Japan group, how would they how would they find out more? Is it just as simple as typing in Kominka Japan onto Facebook? Simple Facebook as that? and and we have our own website. So there's kominkajapan.org has its own website with a lot of information and then there is a Facebook group, but not everybody's on Facebook. So it's, you know, it's important to have the direct link to the website as well. No, thank you. And, and Instagram also, if there are Instagram, Instagram as well. Yeah. And Esby, for viewers that want to get in contact with you, how would, uh, how would they be able to reach you? I'm also on Facebook and on Twitter. Uh, those are two good places to, to, to track me down. Um, 
certainly you know, if you go to the publisher's website of my book, you can find uh, you know contact information there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, yeah, I think I'm available to people who are serious about talking. <laughs> no, thank you very much. So Lauren Asby, mm -hmm. thank you very much for your time. It's very much appreciated. I'm sure that our viewers have learned uh, a lot about Cominkas and more. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.